One of my favorite parenting books is this one, Tim Kimmel's uh, Raising Kids for True Greatness. Uh, a few years after the book was released, um, Tim shared a summary idea with me. We, we were in a, a conversation with a bunch of Pine Cove Camp uh, speakers, and Tim said this. He said, in general, it's the unseen things that both contain and indicate true greatness. Parents get off track by focusing mainly on what can be seen, close quote. And I'll take anything away from what can be seen that is important, but he says true greatness is found in the unseen. Now, as I was reading Mark chapter 9 this week and in the months leading up to this, as I was reading Mark 9, I was reminded exactly of Tim's thesis. Um, Mark chapter 9 deals with true greatness. Here's what it does. This is so cool. Mark 9 subtly teases out all of our false ideas about greatness by working us through a series of events. There's a series of events laid out, and in every one of them, the unseen contains the real truth. Turn your Bibles to Mark 9. You'll see what I mean. Go to Mark chapter 9. Open your Bible to Mark chapter 9. So glad you're with us wherever you are. Open your Bible up to Mark 9. Let's start in verse 1. Then he, Jesus, said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them. And his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, uh, uh, Rabbi, it's, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say since they were terrified. A cloud appeared overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my beloved son. Apparently, I think that God the Father speaks with the voice of James Earl Jones. That's fascinating. Sorry. <clears throat> this is my beloved, I'll stick with it. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around them, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Stop there. As we point out in our notes, God comes in power. Um, you've got notes in your bulletin. If you're here in the auditorium, open them up. You can follow along there. If, if you're online, uh, you, can, you can grab it from the service that you're using. It should be there in the corner. Jesus is revealed as God the Son, brighter than anything of mere earth can be. This is what Jesus promised in, in verse 1. In, in, in verse 1, he, he promised that they would see God come in power, his transfiguration. Peter was really struck by this revelation of Jesus. Look what happened later. 2 Peter chapter 1, many, many years after what we just read, Peter would write this, For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. This was not some trick of the light. Jesus was revealed in majesty as Lord, Messiah, Son of God. So that explains the prediction in verse 1 of power. But I know, I know what question you're asking next. In your, in your James Earl Jones voice, you wonder, so that explains the prediction of seeing power in verse 1. But why did Jesus say that Peter, James, and John would see the kingdom come? Great question, James. Thanks for asking. He said that because the kingdom is where the king is. 
Jesus promised the veil would be removed and they would see, they would see the kingdom in the person of the true king. What is the name of this jet right here? What's the name of this jet? Air Force One. Very good. Got the presidential seal right there. Air Force One. It's called that because the U.S. president is on it. What if the president of the United States gets off of that jet and he gets onto a different plane like, like this one? What is, what is this plane then called? Air Force One. By the way, this is the original Air Force One right here. Isn't that fun? Still flies. The, 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 what the U.S. president shows us is, is in, a, in a far more important way is what Mark is saying. Mark is saying the kingdom is where Jesus is. He is where the kingdom, the kingdom is where he is. And he lets a few of his followers go up on the mountain and actually see it. Now, Mark says it occurred after six days passed from verse 1. But there's a parallel account in Luke, and, and Luke says it was eight days. Why the difference? Well, it seems that Luke is including the day of verse 1 when he made the prediction and the day of the transfiguration. Mark is only listing the days in between. One time I had a, a college student, we were studying the Bible, and this college student told me that this discrepancy between Mark and Luke, he said, this is proof the Bible can't be trusted. When I explained the difference, um, I, I reminded him of this. I said, hey, look, these small differences of perspective and counting are actually very strong arguments for the validity of each gospel. If Christianity were a crafted cult, cleverly devised myths, as Peter put it, if Christianity were a crafted cult, they would have standardized their story. And then I said this to the guy. I said, you know, you better be careful. You start looking into such things, you will very likely become a Christian. And he laughed. Two years later, I baptized him. <laughs> Jesus changes people. He transforms lives, and the transfiguration is a stunning sneak peek into his ability to transform. That's why the text tells us that Jesus metamorphizes. Yes, I made that word up, but it's a good word. Um, transfigured, if you look at that, transfigured in the Greek is the metamorphothe. Metamorphothe, this is really important. Listen, metamorphothe is not merely a change of, of outward appearance. Metamorphothe is an outward revelation of an inner essence. That's what the word means. This, this idea has been borrowed many, many times since then. So, um, so in, when, a, when a Middle English poet wrote uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight in the 14th century, he included a metamorphosis, a revealing. The Green Knight is exposed at the end of the poem as much more than a mere knight. He is the Lord Bertilac de Haute de Serre. Those of you who are Lord of the Rings fans, when Gandalf the White is revealed and he throws off his cloak. It's blinding, right? He's revealed. That's because he's revealed as who he truly is, taken right from here. When um, in the movie An Ice Tale, when, when the hooded knight throws back his hood and everyone realizes it's the black prince, everybody takes a knee. All these are paltry imitations, but they each borrow from the amazing true story of Jesus' metamorphose. This is where they all got the idea. And in the real life story of Jesus' big reveal, his metamorphosis, Moses and Elijah also appear with him. Now, that should have been immensely encouraging. Moses died. Elijah transferred. The Old Testament, you probably know this, the Old Testament uses, uses some general terms to indicate that everyone who trusts in the Messiah, everyone who trusts in God's grace is going to be glorified in eternity. But it's all actually fairly vague in the Old Testament. Well, there's nothing vague about this. Here's Moses, here's Elijah in undecayed flesh having a chat with Jesus. This would be the time to praise God. This would be the moment to realize that however hard it's getting for these disciples now to follow Messiah Jesus, 
They're reminded that everybody who trusts him receives this kind of perfect outcome. It would have been the time to break out in song like a bunch of U.S. Marines did in 2014. I want you to watch and listen as a bunch of Marines sing the song, Days of Elijah. These are the days of Elijah. And these are the days of his servant Moses. Yeah, give him a hand. God comes in power. Jesus metamorphizes. These are the days of Elijah and Moses. This is a time for worship. But instead, Peter proposes booths. Peter says, look what he says. It's a, it's a good thing you have us. Um, we, we can make shelters for you since you, since you uh, so obviously are in need of our protection. Right? Now, it's, it's ridiculous. Now, I know, I know the argument that you're considering in your internal um, U.S. Marine imitation. You're saying, this could be a sign of worship, drill instructor sergeant. Peter may be thinking of the Old Testament festival of booze and the celebration of God tabernacling with people. At ease, Marine, thank you. Um, you may be correct. However, even if that's so, even if Peter is thinking about the festival of booze, there are three big problems with Peter's plan here. First, there seems to be an equality in the three booths. As if, as if Elijah and Moses were Jesus' equals. Do, do you see that? That's what some Bible scholars think is going on here. And Peter wouldn't be the last to make that mistake. And it is a mistake. There is no aspect of his response that recognizes that, that Peter's rabbi is God. By the way, speaking of rabbi, that's, that's the second major problem. Peter only calls Jesus rabbi. Now, he is that. But he's obviously just been revealed as more than a mere teacher. Peter doesn't think through everything he has heard, everything he has seen now. This is God the Son. There are some theologians who think that Peter is trying to purposely dumb down this revelation here so that he can control the situation better. Thank goodness we're not like that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. We, ought to, we, we never try to minimize God just so we can control things, right? Yeah, we do. And we also make Peter's third big goof. And his third big goof is babbling in his terror. Any, anybody here like that? Anybody, anybody here like that? I am. I, I faced with a, a, a shocking situation. Some kind of tense moment. The break on my tongue is blah, 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 it's just absolutely removed. In fact, God the Father has to jump in and say, shut up. Stop talking. Listen to Jesus. And don't write me and say, shut up's a bad word. Listen in the Greek means shut up. That's actually what it means. Wonderfully, Peter learned to listen. We saw that in 2 Peter 1, right? He learned. And just like Peter, we can learn. We can learn to observe and listen and wonder about the greatness of Jesus. All God's people said... 
All right, let's go to the next section. Pick it up in verse 9 so we can get the flow here. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. Then they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come first and restores all things, he replied. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. Now their conversation on the way down the hill concerns the coming of Elijah, and Jesus uses this opportunity to expose some intricacies of prophecy. First, the three disciples wonder, why should Messiah suffer and die? That's really, that's really what they're asking. As as boys educated in the, in the Hebrew synagogue, they're thinking about Messiah. Let, let, me, let me put it this way. Here's how, here's how their thought is flowing. Since Elijah is supposed to come before the last day. By the way, the last day in the Old Testament, the great and terrible day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the last day, all, all the same idea for the, the time of judgment and the establishing of the kingdom, which come after. Um, since Elijah is supposed to come before the last day and reconcile hearts, that's from Malachi chapter 4, the disciples wonder, well, since that's going to happen, why does Messiah need to die? much less rise from the dead. Quite frankly, this is an excellent question. I, I know in Mark, the disciples are shown in all of their raw foolishness and faithlessness, but this is not one of those times. This is actually a well thought through, serious inquiry. So in response, Jesus corrects their, their concept of the Messiah, the Son of Man. Jesus reminds them suffering is in his purpose. Isaiah's songs show that the Son of Man, the son, that, that phrase Son of Man means the Messiah who is God and human at the same time. The Son of Man will suffer. How much will he suffer? Well, Isaiah 52, 14 is kind of representative. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance one would scarcely know he was a man. In all likelihood, Jesus and the three were having this long conversation as they worked their way down the, uh, the mountain escarpment. Now, we don't know which hill it was, uh, but I have climbed every one of the hills in that area, and I can tell you that every one of them requires a lot of work to get up. No technical gear, but a lot of work to get up, and even more work to get down. You, you know it's, it's, it's harder to go down a mountain, that, well, unless you go really fast, but, but it's... It, 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 it's, it takes more work to go down. So as they are going downhill, this is one of the only slow passages in the book of Mark. As they're, as they're having this conversation, Jesus also corrects their eschatology, their study of things to come. He says, Elijah did come in the person of John the baptizer. After a flash of fame, he was unrecognized, unaccepted, and killed. By the way, um, here's the full Malachi text that is the center of their question, okay? Um, th these are the very last words of the very last Old Testament prophet, Malachi chapter 4, uh, Yahweh speaking, look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the lamb with a curse. The way it worked out, John the baptizer became a type of Elijah. Elijah will indeed return. He will precede the restoration, the day of the Lord. He, he's got to or else all of Israel will be destroyed with a curse. Now, <clears throat> please remember this. This mountaintop conversation is not ultimately about Elijah. It's about Jesus. And both John the Baptist and Elijah point to Jesus. That, that's, why, 
That's why Matthew 17, Matthew has a parallel account in chapter 17. He adds that the same rejection that the baptizer faced is going to be borne by the Son of Man. Here's Matthew's account. Um, So the disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah is coming. We'll restore everything, he replied. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Jesus will suffer and die and rise again. John the Baptist did suffer and die. Elijah will return before the day of the Lord. Now, after this slow moment descending the Mount of Transfiguration, Mark once again picks up the pace. The the breathless pace of Mark kicks back in, and it all starts when Jesus heals a boy after they get down from the mountain. Go to verse 14. When they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing with them about? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes an unable speak. Whenever it seizes him, it, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. He replied to them, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked the father. From childhood, he said. Many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can. Hmm. Everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And then it came out, shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said, he, He's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him, and he stood up. After he'd gone into the house, and remember, Capernaum is Jesus' adopted hometown, so they had, they had a house there. <clears throat> After he'd gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. On the right side of our notes, we point out the most significant aspect of this story. The most significant aspect is the cry, help my unbelief. The father gets the heart of the issue here. The disciples don't. And in fact, most Christians throughout the ages have missed this as well. The right response to so much of life is, I believe, help my unbelief. Look, I have Christian friends who get all excited about verse 23. They walk around naming and claiming things and, that they see as, as their right. They, they, they get so excited about their, their health or their success or their wealth that they see their faith is tied directly to themselves. See, here's how it works. Because they work so hard to trust God and because they believe so strongly, they feel entitled to whatever they want, whatever they ask. Now, I have other Christian friends who focus almost exclusively on only the very end clause of verse 24. They love to speak about human limits and the depravity of humanity. They they ironically are very proud of human inadequacies. Each group is half right, which makes them all wrong, tragically. The charismatic Christians, that's the first group, they divorce verse 23 from verse 24. The other Christians ignore verse 23 and the first part of verse 24. But this brilliant parent, look at him. He makes neither of our mistakes. 
He believes Jesus, but he also recognizes that his own belief is a suspect, watery, ineffective thing. And that's what's missing in Jesus' disciples, past and present. We tend to lose either verse 23 or verse 24. We miss the real power that is found in trusting God, or we think the focus is on ourselves and our amount of belief. This incredible dad commits neither of our errors. This makes verse 24 one of the greatest statements of truth ever uttered. He does believe, but he recognizes in his belief his incredible weakness. Now, of course, Jesus didn't need the man to believe in order to heal. But Jesus uses the opportunity that is presented here to emphasize that trust in him is the issue in life and that trust should be placed in Jesus, not in self. That's why the episode closes with Jesus' statement that asking God is the most important thing. The unseen torment of the boy, remember it's about the unseen. The unseen torment of the boy is removed by the non-material, the unseen asking of prayer. Now, you notice the disciples are back to their ineffective norm here. Uh, David Wade of our pulpit team shared a great recreation with me. He wrote me, he said, Wayne, here's how I pictured this going down. My guess is the disciples were still pumped about their recent mission to proclaim the good news where they, among other things, drove out many demons. That's in Mark chapter 6. So when the man came to them with his son, they likely thought, hey, we got this. Which one of you guys wants to take this one? Right? They forgot that they had no power in themselves. All capacity was in the authority that Jesus had given them. Thus, they were utterly dumbfounded, I'm sure he intended that pun, when the boy remained ill. Jesus' answer in verse 29 is that nothing works in such situations except prayer. And the noun he uses for prayer in verse 29 is really revealing. Prosuche is not the most common term for praying. Um, the, the old Greek writers, uh, Aeschylus, Herodotus, they use this term uh, for worshiping someone greater than oneself. Unlike all the other words for prayer, prosuche is taken from a Greek word for soul. So, so it means that you're laying out your soul, yourself. Here's, here's what I think a, a, a long rendering of that statement might be. These come out only by bearing your empty soul to God. Not being all excited about your belief and how strong you are. Not being all defeated about how weak you are. But I believe, help my unbelief, bear your empty soul to God. Now, you want to hear something so sad that it's almost funny? As I researched and learned about prosuche, as I I did a lot of research on this noun, I immediately began appropriately to think about myself. But my internal reaction, this is what I immediately scribbled down. This was my note I wrote down. I need to try really hard. I need to leave everything on the field in prayer. I need to fight spiritually and triumph. That's absurd. Because the opposite is actually what's in view with this word. Prosuche means to ask from a place of emptiness. This is prayer that recognizes my absolute limitations, empty soul, and offers a request in the worship of Yahweh who is so much greater than I. Notice the contrast. Look at the text. Is Jesus saying that exorcism and healing is all about the human priest's power, his, his special incantations, his knowledge? Is that what it's about, yes or no? Heavens, no. Now, I hear that from a lot of various church groups through the centuries, but that is not what prosuche means. Jesus says we must turn our empty souls to God, bearing ourselves in trust of him. Then he will rightly handle things. Amen? Now, after this, the thought section continues with the second passion prediction. Um, Go to verse uh, 30. Verse 30. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee. 
but he did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, but after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Now, this is the second very clear prediction of Jesus' passion. We saw the first one back in Mark chapter 8. That was the one to which Peter reacted horribly. Um, now we hear a second prophecy about Jesus' suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. The, this is obviously an expansion of the conversation they had coming down the mountain, only now it's with all 12 of the disciples. Jesus is on a mission. He doesn't want any distractions. The disciples don't understand, but they try to keep their confusion hidden, which makes for great humor here. Look, look at this. Last time, Peter rebuked Jesus in his passion prediction, right? And he got, rightfully, excoriated by the Lord and it, because he was setting his mind on human concerns, not on God's. So now the disciples decide to do the only thing worse than rebuking God. They refuse to talk to him. It's the only thing worse they could do. They rebuke God. Oh, we can't do that. We just won't talk to him. And they think they're getting away with their silent misunderstanding, which is even more hilarious. This is a ridiculous game. Many of us play this. We think we can or should hide from God. I would call it childish, but even babies know better. For example, watch this little toddler. Watch her. You can't see me. You can't see me. You can't see me. Where am I? Where's daddy? Look, look. <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> what a face. That baby knows the truth. Daddy is there, even if he's unseen. Likewise, our daddy is here. And nothing about us is unknown by our father. The plot thickens in the next two verses. Go to verse 33. They came to Capernaum. They came back. They went through Galilee, come back to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent <clears throat> because on the way they'd been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. <clears throat> Their argument over greatest is the perfect, greatness is the perfect example of the kind of foolishness that we absurdly try to hide from God. In our notes, we say the disciples try again to hide something from God. Thank goodness we're never like that. But of course we are. We have what we think are secret sins. We hold competitions with other Christians. We, uh, we compare in our minds, and it's all so ridiculous. The, the good news is that their private discussion leads to a revelation of what God considers great. Here is the summit of the passage. Go to, go to the next verse, verse 35. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. Jesus says greatness comes from servant, childlike, child-friendly leadership. This is the key to greatness, according to our king. Servant, childlike, child-friendly leadership. Our elders have tried to establish this church on exactly that kind of leadership. So, for example, just one example. When we built the very first building ever at Frisco Bible Church, we didn't have any scene where all the elders had gold spray-painted shovels and were standing there getting their photo taken. That's fine. But it doesn't seem to fit what our king is actually calling us to. So instead, every child had a little plastic shovel. And all the kids around the whole perimeter took their plastic shovels and they, they shared them with adults that they invited to join them. 
And, and they let the adults come with them, and they broke the ground together. Servant, childlike, child-friendly leadership. Now, child, here's the one part that gets most misunderstood. Childlike leadership is not childish leadership. Childish means foolish, or, or at best, naive. Childlike means being open to wonder, open to wonder. In, in the Narnian, his fantastic book about C.S. Lewis, um, Alan Jacobs takes us to the change that this chapter, Mark chapter 9, made in C.S. Lewis's thinking. Look, look what he says. He said, C.S. Lewis's mind was above all characterized by a willingness to be enchanted. What is secretly present in what he said about anything is an openness to delight, to the sense that there's more to the world, the unseen. There's more to the world than meets the jaundiced eye, to the possibility that anything could happen to someone who is ready to meet that anything. Jacobs goes on. In most children, but in relatively few adults, at least in our time, we may see this willingness to be delighted to the point of self-abandonment. But why do we lose that desire, or if not the desire, the ability to give ourselves in this way? Adolescence introduces the fear of being deceived, the fear of being caught believing what others have ceased believing in. To be gullible is the greatest humiliation of adolescence. Lewis seemed never to have been fully possessed of this fear, though at times in his life he felt like it. And here's a quote from C.S. Lewis. When I was 10, I read fairy stories in secret and would have been ashamed to found doing so. Now that I'm 50, I read them openly. And this is a great statement on 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Lewis says this, When I became a man, I put away childish things, including the desire to be very grown up. Close quote. Now, you may be wondering in your, um, in your young child imitation, why does this matter so much? Great question. Thank you for asking. Why is servant, childlike, child-friendly leadership so important? Why does Jesus make such a big deal out of this? Having them all come in, having the child stand, picking up the child, illustrating. Here's why. Because if we believers in Jesus aren't open to wonder like children, if we don't see ourselves as the servants of all, then we miss out on the ultimate rewards of following him. We lose the chance to be truly great in his kingdom. C.S. Lewis thought a lot about this. And by the way, so has Alan Jacobs. Listen to another paragraph. This is from, uh, again, from the Narnian. Dr. Jacobs writes, and, and while I read this, you get to look at Pauline Maine's amazing illustration from 1973, uh, 63, sorry. Um, <clears throat> In the first years of belief in Jesus, Lewis quickly got to what he would soon see as the heart of the matter, what he called that ludicrous and terrible depth of one's self-love and admiration. Unless a Christian relies on God's grace as a childlike servant, his ultimate fate will be that of the dwarves at the end of the last battle. How many of you have read the last battle? It's the last book in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Okay, the rest of you, get on it, please. Um, start with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We can debate some other time about how you think they ought to be read chronologically, but the right way is to start with Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and then you end with the last battle. Okay, here, if, even if you haven't read it, here's the last battle, okay? There's these dwarves, and in the midst of this glorious landscape, because they, they have fought for Aslan, they are believers in Aslan, who's the Christ figure in the story. They're there in the, in the undiscovered country, the, the heaven. The dwarves are in the midst of a glorious landscape, but huddle together and face each other, insisting that the rich red wine is but dirty water out of a trough, and the magnificent feast is no more than an old turnip and a cabbage leaf. 
When the children beg Aslan, again, that's the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. When the children beg Aslan to help the dwarves, he tries. The wine and the feast are his effort, but he must conclude they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds, yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. Close quote. Dear friends, please do not let that be you. Become great in God's kingdom. Have wonder, wonder with the eyes of a child. Serve, especially serve children. Speaking of which, let's do this. I'd like to do this. If you serve in any of the FB Kids Ministries, uh, if you serve children in Sunday School or Awana or, uh, or American Heritage Girls or Trail Life, any of the kid ministries at FBC, stand up right now. If you serve in any kid ministry at FBC, stand up right now. Thank you. Oh, come on, all of you, and let's give them a hand. Well done. Thank you. You may think that your service is hidden, but you are great. You are great in the kingdom. Now, speaking of people serving Christ, our passage closes with one last word. This is the end of the thought section. It's a quick word about people serving and working in Jesus' name. Go to verse 38. Verse 38. <clears throat> if my page wouldn't turn on its own, I would find it. There we go. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, said Jesus. Because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who could soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. There's much to discover here, but we're going to stick with the big idea. The big idea is pretty simple. Believers who work in Jesus' name receive great reward. To work in Jesus' name is to follow his ethic. It means to serve in a childlike and child-loving fashion. It doesn't matter if the little ones that you serve are in your same group or not. What matters is we follow the same Lord. Very simply, those who do so will be rewarded eternally with prizes that will never fail, never pale, and cannot be stolen. Tim Kimmel noted in that book we referenced earlier, that kind of service may be invisible. It may be hidden from humans. But working in Jesus' name is true greatness, and it receives eternal reward. By contrast, those who cause others not to follow suffer great loss. All Christians are little ones. In our weakness and our need, prosuche, we all trust Jesus. But, you know, sometimes people try to stop us from following Jesus. They can't stop us from believing, but they try to stop us from following Christ. Non-Christians do this, sure, but sometimes we Christians do it to each other. We, we get jealous of our brethren. Have you seen this? We get jealous of our brethren who are too spiritual, and we try to bring them back down to our level. Or, or, we, or we tempt we, we do this. We tempt other Christians to join us in our rebellion. We, we, we especially want them to adopt whatever our favorite vice is so we don't have to feel as bad about our sin. Possibly the most common thing by which we cause others to fall away is when we give up meeting together. And I'm not talking about pandemic quarantines. I, I mean those regular times when you and I assume that we're just too busy or too tired or too uninterested to go to worship, to go to group, to go to Bible study. We think that we're only affecting ourselves, right? After all, we, this is what we tell ourselves. After all, I'm, I'm only deciding for me. 
I mean, I'm not telling my brethren to stay away from church. Oh, but, but when you're not there to hold in the heat, the fire cools for your brethren. And without your flame, the broader coals expire in the frigid air of life. Now, you're not responsible, you know this, you're not responsible for anyone else's judgment, but you are responsible for your part in causing others to lose their fire. And that is a literally heavy responsibility. Jesus isn't kidding about the outcome of of causing our brethren to stop following him. The, The loss is so great, in fact, that the Lord describes it using a metaphorical image that he assures us is not as bad as what we really will face. So... So which would you rather live out? Verse 41 or verse 42? Would you rather live out reward or loss? Which is it? 41 or 42, everybody? 41. See, 42 is not the answer to life, the universe, and everything. If you want to live out verse 41, then you and I had better pray. We better pray prosuche style. We better bear our empty souls to God. Pray with me. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I pray for myself. I pray with my brothers and sisters that you... You will forgive what you are exposing in our hearts right now, the ways in which we have, we have not followed you in Christ-like wonder, the ways in which we have not had childlike joy in you, the ways in which we have not been child-friendly, the ways in which we have caused others to, to diminish in their zeal for following you, and we are sorry. We praise you and thank you for the forgiveness that is found only in Jesus. And Lord, we pray that we will seek true greatness. As we leave here today, we will do it as people who seek true greatness in servant, childlike, child-focused leadership. Lord, we bear our souls to you, prosuke, our empty souls. And Father, we pray for those who, who are not believers in Jesus, that you will bring them to you, even right now. Listen, if you have never trusted Jesus as Savior, do so right now. He, he is who he claimed to be. He proved it. He is the Son of Man, that Messiah who is fully God and fully human. And he did, as he predicted, die on that cross and raise from the dead. And he did it because he loves you. He loves you. He paid the price that only he could pay to cover your sin. Trust him and enter everlasting life. Some some of you may be trying to follow him, which is sweet, but you haven't believed on him. Don't mistake the two. You need to trust Christ. And then, as servant, childlike, child-focused leadership, you need to follow him. If you've never trusted Jesus, do so right now. Believe on him. If you just trusted Jesus, if you just talked to God... You just bared your empty soul and said, I believe in Jesus alone. Raise your hand, would you please? Look up at me. I just want to rejoice with you. If you're online, you can, you can chat with your moderator. They want to rejoice with you as well. There's also a little form you can fill out there. Great. Thank you.
Father, I pray for all of us that we will walk with one pure and holy passion to know and follow hard after Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.